This is the Urban Political, the podcast on urban theory, research, and activism. So, welcome, dear listeners. Today, we are here to discuss Adam Auerbach's new book, "Migrant and Machine Politics: How India's Urban Poor Seek to Re- Seek Representation and Responsiveness," which Adam has written with Tariq Tachil. And uh, I'm really glad that Adam is here with us to discuss his book. And um, we have two other really great respondents who will introduce themselves just in a second. Well, um, hello, um, everyone. I'm I'm Adam Auerbach.、Um, I'm an associate professor at the School of International Service、um, at American University. Um, and please just let me add that、um, it's incredibly exciting and an honor to be、um, here with you, Nitin, Sophie, and Nico.、Uh, thank you so much for for reading and engaging our book. I'm very excited for the conversation. Hi, everyone.、Uh, I'm Sophie Heinz. I'm a political science PhD researcher at the University of Zurich,、um, where I'm both affiliated with political science department and、uh, Indian studies department at the Institute of Asian Oriental Studies. And、uh, in my dissertation project, I Explore the changes in public service provision in Delhi under the current government of the、um, Army Party,、uh, and I'm really, really excited to、um, engage in this conversation because、uh, Adams and Tarek's work has been extremely informative、uh, for my understanding of not only like ground level dynamics of public service delivery in different contexts in India, but also on how political science research is really at its best when a multitude of methodologies are employed and complement、uh, each other. Um, to build and test theoretical arguments, so I'm really excited. Hello, everyone.、Um, I'm also very excited to be part here、uh, of this、uh, conversation. My name is Nicolas Palacios. I'm a PhD researcher at ETH Zurich at the Spatial Development and Urban Policy Group. My research is related to the role of digital platforms in the production of urban space and how they rely on migrant labor、uh, in the global north to. Actually, be able to provide these services, and the, also the relations of exploitation and ambivalent relation between labor and labor and the platform. So I think that there's also a lot of very interesting parallels.、Uh, even though the book is focused on India, I think that there's a lot that we can take away to understand representation and responsiveness in other contexts.、So、thank you very much for the opportunity to be here. Thanks, Adam. Thanks, Sophie. Thanks, Nico. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for taking your time out、uh, to discuss this important book. So, just to add,、uh, this book is a part of the Princeton Studies in Political Behavior series, and、uh, it's available to buy online. You can buy it in paperback and as an ebook on most platforms across the world. Or access it through your libraries. I really enjoyed the book,、uh, but、uh, just to contextualize it in the moment,、uh, we just had、uh, a very big、uh, political upheaval in India a couple of days ago, and、uh, it was in this context that I enjoyed the book even more. Which is the a very shocking、uh, landslide victory of the center-left Congress Party over the. Quite divisive and、uh, religious majoritarian politics of the BJP in the Indian state of Karnataka in South India, which is one of the biggest states, and、uh, it's somehow seen by political commentators as a turning tide in this sort of right-wing majoritarian politics. And uh, just to uh, bring that、uh, this current moment and project it into Adam's book, which I I don't know if Adam. Foresaw that this moment would come or not, but just to say that Adam's Adam and of course Tariq's book、uh, focuses on、uh, two quarter settlements in、uh, two states,、uh, which are in central and western India, which are Rajasthan and Madhya Pradesh, and two capital cities,、uh, which is Jaipur and Bhopal of these states respectively. Adam and Ta-、uh, Tariq's book takes us in the. Everyday life of quarter settlements in these、uh, cities, and、uh, sort of tries to bring us close to political representation that migrants coming into these quarter settlements see, which is which I found quite refreshing because it it doesn't presuppose a gangster type、uh, environment、uh, and tries to sort of unmask and unearth、uh, some of the deeper politics uh, which. Uh, I I really enjoyed this metaphor of machine politics, which was、um, somehow to me as an urban studies person and not coming from 
political science was unknown, but uh, perhaps in political science, it's quite well known, this machine politics metaphor. So I really enjoyed it because it is talking about uh, how perhaps squatter politics um, or squatter settlements, which we as urban studies scholar see and discuss and write about so much, it actually works and how people um, living in these squatter settlements uh, build up political representation. It's, it's a very interesting and exciting book uh, that deals with this. Uh, so perhaps, uh, Adam, jumping right into my first question to you, is uh, if you could talk a little bit more about the metaphor of machine politics itself. Absolutely. Well, uh, Nitin, thank you for that generous introduction uh, to the book. And yes, the idea of the political party machine um, is absolutely central to our, you know, our theoretical framework, our empirical work. Um, party machines are really defined um, in, with, with, with two respects. One is their shape, the way that they're organized, and the other is what they do. Um, in terms of their shape, um, they're hierarchically organized. Um, they connect um, most often low-income urban neighborhoods up to the highest echelons of politics in the city, uh, political elites in the city, uh, through tiered networks of party workers. In terms of what they do, they're most known for engaging in the exchange of access to basic public goods and services for political support. And the study of political party machines goes back at least a century. You know, Chicago school sociologists studying you know, low-income migrants coming from Europe, settling in cities like you know, New York City, Philadelphia, Chicago, um, living in ethnic enclaves, you know, trying to find work, uh, trying to get electricity connections, you know, for their houses or water connections, um, access to hospital beds. And these political party machines uh, in the cities in North America, you know, most famous, you know, of which would be, you know, the Democratic Party machine during the Gilded Age period in, in New York City, Tammany Hall politics, uh, where the Democratic Party machine had ward bosses, you know, who lived, were embedded in these neighborhoods, would take up the problems for migrants um, and seek to solve them with the expectation that when election time comes, those low-income migrants will sort of shuffle behind the ward bomb in support of the, Dem the Democratic Party machine. So, you know, much of the roots of this sort of idea of the party machine, you know, goes back, you know, decades. Um, and as political scientists and other sociologists sought to understand party organization, processes of migration, urbanization in the global South, you know, this idea of the party machine, um, again, in terms of both its structure and what it does, really echoed um, with what they were seeing. Um, so there's, you know, outstanding work on, for instance, you know, the PRI um, in Mexico, the Peronist Party in Argentina, you know, the examples really stretching across the global south and the global north. You know, a lot of the uh, work by Chubb um, on party machines in, in Sicily. Um, so, I mean, just to give you a sense that, you know, this is, you know, a, a literature that's sort of a century, you know, in the making. So in terms of, um, you know, the two cities that we've studied in India, Jaipur and Bhopal, and, and we certainly don't think this is unique to these two cities, but the Congress party, the Bharatiya Janata party, the two parties, you know, that are primarily in competition in our two study states and in, in our two study cities, Jaipur and Bhopal, um, are organized in the very same way. You have booth level committees that stretch down into the individual gullies, you know, of kachibastis, um, the, the Hindi word for, for squatter settlements. And, you know, these, these organizations in the neighborhoods are then linked to uh, political elites in Jaipur and Bhopal uh, through the ward committees, through block committees, through the, the city committee, district committee. So there's, there's a, you know, essentially a small army of party workers, kardiakartha, yeah, would be the Hindi word, who connects um, these low-income settlements in India cities to, to these upper strata politics in the city. Um, and they too, um, engaging in very sort of similar activities as um, what was documented by scholars looking at the Democratic Party machine in New York City. People in, um, you know, squatter settlements, um, you know, these are areas of India cities where property rights are either totally absent or weak, where residents, you know, uh, there's the constant sort of fear that the bulldozers will come and knock down their homes. They emerge on greenfield sites where there's very little access to basic infrastructure and services, especially when, the, of course, the community first emerges. So there's significant need and political parties seek to exchange access to these very basic goods and services and protection from eviction for political support. Of course, uh, during elections, and this always comes up in the newspapers, you know, parties engaging in activities that are referred to by political scientists as vote buying. So you'll get parties handing out things like desi daru, you know, country liquor, you know, small amounts of cash, bags of food uh, for, again, for low-income residents of these communities to try to sort of bring them over to the to that side of, of the party. 
So, you know, Tarek and I, in, in doing the research, research for this book, which, you know, unfolded over the course of almost a decade, you know, several years of ethnographic fieldwork between the two of us, surveys among residents, community leaders, and uh, politicians in the city, we were really trying to understand, you know, as India continues its urbanization story, you know, India already has a billion, pe half a billion people living in its cities. Almost half of India's whole population will live in cities just in the next couple of decades. So much of the migration from the countryside people moving to cities, oftentimes residing in squatter settlements, how are they being incorporated into the politics of the city? We really look to how the network are constructed within these party machines, how they're connecting or not connecting um, low-income voters to the states to get access to these goods and services and, and to improve their security. And, and so, you know, this, this very theme, of course, uh, immediately brought up the, the idea of the party machine. Um, and so it, it serves as the, both that metaphor, but also, you know, our, our theoretical framework and the you know, the empirical focus of the, of the project. Thank you so much. Uh, I think that's it's so interesting. And I think you already gave um, some very interesting crumbs and outlooks on what the book is all all about. Um, I, I want to jump on the point of party machine and kind of like link it to the discussion that you have towards the end of the book on centralization and the risk of centralization, what it means for public service delivery. So currently, right, there's a, there's a lot of discussion on how the BJP is putting a lot of effort into centralizing public service delivery ever since they got into power on the national level in 2014. And currently in Delhi, for example, you see so many posters celebrating how the rule in the center of the BJP and um, also in India's biggest state, Uttar Pradesh, UP, how this uh, double engine Kisarkar is working together to deliver development efficiently to the people. So, so you argue in your conclusion that centralization of service delivery might actually uh, undermine these successful claim making processes that you show in your book um, because it, it lowers competition on a local level. Um, and then there's less opportunities for brokers who find themselves in opposition on the local level, so who don't belong to the uh, ruling party on the local level, to do this governance level leapfrogging and reach out to a party leader that might be at a higher level, higher governance level, but of their own party, co-partisan. So this undermines sort of like these bottom-up request channels. But at the same time, I think there there is a point when people do talk about how uh, efficiency in public service delivery can be increased when you have officials on different governance levels actually working together and cooperating and sort of like uh, merging their efforts. So what do you think, which model works better in the sense that um, do you see a difference in the quality of public service delivery? For example, when a councillor and MLA or maybe other levels um, are co-partisans. Is it more easy to get budget? Like there's a difference in the speed. These requests are resolved across constituencies. Or do we actually see that competition really is sort of like the driving force behind kind of keep, keeping people on their toes to actually deliver to their constituencies? Absolutely. Well, Sophie, thank you. That's an absolutely fascinating question. And yeah, I mean, what we sought to do in the book, they're spending, you know, what, 200 pages on, you know, trying to understand how these networks are constructed, you know, after people move to these squatter settlements, how do they choose their informal leaders in their communities, generating these cast of characters that we refer to as in the literature as, as brokers? Um, how do brokers select, you know, the residents in the communities that they help? How do politicians in the city go about selecting local leaders within the communities, these brokers to bring into their party network. So, you know, throughout the book, we're engaging in sort of the study of these grassroots politics um, in the city. But then, you know, we get to the end of the book and what we're seeking to do is really sort of say, what what is the relevance of studying sort of this grassroots politic in a polity um, and in a time when so much political power is being funneled upward um, and is being concentrated, you know, really um, within the prime minister's office and, and sort of this new welfareism in India, you know, intimately tied tied into the, the Modi brand. How would these dynamics um, change what we observed um, over the course of the decade? You know, and most of that data was collected before the 2019 election. So yeah, we're trying to put our, you know, our findings into conversation with these larger um, sort of forms and trajectories in India's politics. And exactly as you said, you know, we try to anticipate um, at, the, at the end of the book and the conclusion, as, as sort of power gets sucked upwards, what is this going to do to sort of local politics? And, you know, you put your finger on one sort of expectation that we might have for this. In chapter five of the book, we get into this idea of credit claiming, that politicians, you know, in cities, you know, much like politicians elsewhere, outside of cities and outside of India, they like to take credit for the developmental goods that they deliver within community. You know, at least Nitin and Sophie, I know, you know, I'm sure you've seen in India's cities that, you know, these are landscapes that are often littered with uh, credit claiming paraphernalia and signs you know, it's very common in our field work to go into community and there'd be an ironed, you know, an iron sign cemented into the ground saying, ward counselor, these elected officials, you know, I'm the one that gave you this paved road. I am the one that gave you, um, you know, these street lights um, or the sewer. You know, you'll see water tanks um, that are tagged with graffiti of the names of politicians on it. Well, so much of the oxygen for this effort around credit claiming, you know, gets sucked out of the room 
when suddenly credit for it is is brought upwards, you know, the the image of you know Modi and the you know central you know politicians and the central government sort of branded on it. Um, it, it takes away those opportunities for credit cleaning. And so, you know, I think we would expect that as if things continue to go in that direction, it would change to some degree the dynamics of credit cleaning with with implications for how distributed politics unfolds in India's cities. You know, as you also mentioned, you know, we surveyed as part of our book 629 slum leaders, um, leaders of these squatter settlement communities, the vast majority of whom um, work for a political party, either the Congress party or the BJP. You know, the B BJP hegemony you know, at the center, um, and Rajasthan will, of course, be engaged uh, in elections, you know, this coming year, uh, with many expectations that the BJP will come to power in the state. You know, if you're a Congress party worker, and it's difficult for you to switch to the BJP, or you don't want to switch to the BJP, that might be more difficult to access politicians and therefore access basic public goods and services for your community. You know, and, you know, one interesting thing that we noticed, and again, this might be somewhat unique to Rajasthan and Madhya Pradesh, uh, you know, due to party systems and electoral competition, although I don't think it is, but it's it was very rare in the communities that we studied. So we surveyed 110 squatter settlements, spent a you know, considerable amount of time doing ethnographic case studies in our survey research. But across these communities, it would be extremely rare for your ward counselor, your MLA, the municipal governments, the mayor, state government, and the center to all be perfectly aligned. That, that would be incredibly rare. A, a much more common scenario would be, you know, our, our ward counselors from the Congress party, the majority in the Nagar Nigam, the municipal government, is BJP. The mayor is Congress because there's there's direct elections for mayor. You know, our MLA is BJP. Our MP is Congress. The state government is Congress. You, know, you see where I'm going. So it was not a common um, situation um, looking at this through the eyes of a resident or a community leader where they're looking upward towards the state and only seeing one party in power. There's usually some outlet for you to go to um, of someone that has their hands in the gears of the state for you to bring your petitions and your claims for basic public services for your community. So, yeah, I mean, uh, you know, Indian elections are, of course, you know, very hard to predict, you know, it, you know extremely competitive. Um, and we, we certainly expect, you know, that to sort of continue you know, in Rajasthan and Madhya Pradesh. But yeah, we really want to keep, you know, our eyes, of course, on, you know, these larger changes um, in, in national politics, because they do trickle down with implications to the local level. You know, and, and one last thing, I mean, one other theme that we try to take on in the conclusion is uh, Hindu majoritarianism. You know, we document in several chapters of our book that the political networks that form in squatter settlements are incredibly multi-ethnically diverse, incredibly ethnically diverse, with Hindu residents going to Muslim slum leaders, Muslim residents going to Hindu slum leaders, People of different castes, a jati, um, going to leaders of, of castes um, that are not their own. Uh, people from Rajasthan going to informal leaders, you know, who have migrated from Chhattisgarh or West Bengal. This is not necessarily because of a, you know, a cosmopolitanism in the city. It's because of the, the compulsions of wanting to go to somebody that can get things done for your community. And people being willing to overlook ethnicity to turn to somebody that can help them. But with, you know, this constant drumbeat Hindu majoritarianism, um, that might put great strains, uh, in particular, um, into religious networks uh, of problem solving in these communities. It might, it might be just become increasingly, you know, untenable to hold up these sort of connections. Uh, but thank you so much for that question, Sophie. I was very captivated by the simplicity, but also the explanatory power that the frame of the arenas of selection gives to the book, like the relation between patrons, brokers and poor migrants voters in the context of Jaipur and Bhopal. But by the by the conclusion comes up the question of like beyond the slums. So then also very quickly we start looking at like cross-national research, single country studies. And I feel that then there's also a shift of the scale. So we go from the city again to talk about like national level. And of course as the research that's been done, like general political science always concerned with the state. So for me it was the, the work done in the book was extremely interesting, but because it kind of brings back again the question of the urban, the political level of the urban. So I wanted to ask you, how do you see the value of reshifting these questions that usually are taken at the national level to the level of the urban and start seeing a lot of these uh, situations as a city, at the city level? So what's your take on this? I, I really appreciate that question. And one of the many reasons why I like to hang out with, uh, with non-political scientists often is, I mean, I think a lot of the best work on you know, urban governance, politics development is happening in geography, you know, anthropology, you know, urban planning. I think, you know, at least in, within comparative politics, and I, I, this is very much seen through the lens of American political science, the you know, self-identified sort of you know, being an urbanist uh, within political science is still very nascent and 
you know, with several of my colleagues, we're, we're trying our best to sort of uh, generate a community of scholars who, who see themselves, you know, at least in part as urbanists, because, you know, as you're suggesting, you know, cities are, are unique political spaces. I mean, the, the built space is, is unique. It structures social and political life in particular ways. Ideas of migratory churn, people coming and going, the, the diversity that emerges, you know, within cities um, and how that intersects with, you know, things like, you know, racism, discrimination, segregation. Uh, to generate particular sort of geographies of where people are in the city and how they interact with with politicians and and, and politics in the city. So you know, I, I certainly personally think, and I I know the the three of you would agree that thinking through the through the lens of the city and how you know the the contours you know both physically and their their economies, how they shape all these important outcomes that we care about at the local level, you know, is really essential. You know, there's um, political science is is, is of course a, a very diverse field. You know, with people um, doing research at multiple levels of analysis, you know, different units of analysis. You know, there's been an interesting sort of subnational turn. Um, a colleague of mine um, here at American University, uh, Agustina Garardi. Um, along with Eduardo Moncada and Richard Snyder have a great book on sort of the subnational research design, you know, that sort of going more local facilitates comparison, um, that you can sort of hold constant sort of national politics and delve more deeply in, into the local. You know, Tarek and I in our in our book, you know, we're not even necessarily seeking to sort of, you know, make comparisons between Jaipur and Bhopal. I mean, that was always sort of implicitly going on in the background because these, of course, are two different cities. You know, I think the the texture of the local, you know, going all the way down into the neighborhood fascinates us. You know, these, these neighborhoods that we study, these squatter settlements are their own fascinating, unique social and political spaces. You know, the average one emerged around 1980. Um, so they're about, you know, the average one again in our two cities is about 40 years old. You know, migrants, you know, coming into these greenfield sites, you know, setting up an individual little juki, um, you know, a shanty would be the translation, you know, in this little plot of land. And then the you know, the diversity of these communities, people coming from different areas, belonging to different religions, belonging to different caste groups. You know, that's sort of time A, you know, when, when these communities emerge, you know, we're going in 40, 40 years later, and it's just absolutely fascinating to try to reconstruct the micro histories of these individual neighborhoods. They have their own histories. They have their own types of engagement with the states, you know, patterns of collective action that emerge um, among residents. And of course, all of this being shaped by a lack of property rights, the threat of eviction, um, a lack of access to basic public goods and services, engagement with um, you know political actors and parties that seek to sort of take advantage um, of that vulnerability and that precarity informality in the city to seek you know political support. So yeah, I mean you know looking down at the grassroots, um, studying it intensely, trying to historicize these pro processes, you know was which is absolutely crucial. And I think you know one of the things that initially brought Tarek and I together was um, sort of a, a shared general interest for the grassroots um, and really wanting to grapple with. Um, you know, with these communities um, that are that are so rich, you know, in their in their in their histories. Thank you so much. Um, I would just like to actually continue on that conversation um, on the specific context of the urban, and would like to point out how I think like it's really a great contribution of this book that you focus on types of um, on a type of politics, community interaction that has so far been understudied in the Indian context, informal urban settlements, and not only for the sake of like shedding light on life realities that are already so prevalent are going to become even more prevalent in the coming decades, as you outlined. But because these are recent settlements of migrants who find themselves in this new societal makeup as these settlements emerge and give you the opportunity to study sort of like how grassroots political power structures are formed in, in the absence of these sort of like century-long hierarchical power structures that you often find in villages and that a lot of like this patronate literature is also focused on um, so far. So one thing that you find um, in, in sort of like the first arena of competition that you look at when you ask the question, what kind of brokers do people want? What kind of qualities do people uh, look for in a broker? And you find that um, people generally favor these brokers who are, who are educated and, and, and capable. And capable, that means uh, in, they have some sort of upward connectivity, they have some link uh, to higher levels of, of authority or governance that help them place their claims and get them resolved. And, and you also mentioned that, uh, um, uh, that this is to some extent substitutable with, with, uh, with uh, co-ethnicity. More realistically, actually, people uh, choose a, a capable leader rather than a co-ethnic because in these very ethnically diverse settlements, as you point out, that's just the more prevalent choice. And still, like, even if these, all of these settlers are recent transplants in these settlements, let's say, or they're all kind of like, they start from a clean slate. I was wondering um, of, uh, about the different kinds of forms of capital that accumulate uh, over time. So things like land ownership or, um, or, or family businesses, or like different forms of employment that allow you to accumulate capital in different forms than wage labor, in which many of these people involve. Aside from sort of like the connectivity part, um, isn't it that then these kinds of people who have more free time 
who also have a kind of a particular type of social command over people um, are more likely to actually uh, engage in these brokering activities or this social work just because their permission in society allows them to do that. And and building on that, I was wondering whether you, because you also um, did a lot of archival work, which I find so fascinating and you, you, you document that in the book. As as these settlements progress um, and uh, and become like these power structures maybe become more entrenched, do you see that maybe gradually there's like a kind of, let's say, quote unquote, village type dynastic dynamic um, emerge that might be based on these kinds of um, different forms of capital? Sophie, thank you, you know, for all these questions that really so nicely center on uh, chapter two of our book, which, you know, exactly as you said, seeks to understand, you know, after the dust of squatting settles, the the need for collective action and leadership is really intense. People in the community um, who can rally others, write petitions, go visit the offices of bureaucrats and politicians to ask for things for the community. So just as you said, you know, we, we seek to ask this question in, you know, in chapter two, you know, what role do residents play, first of all? Um, do they actually have agency over the selection of these local informal leaders? Because much of the literature on local political brokers um, and these sort of informal local leaders would suggest that residents don't really have that much of a role to play, and that they are selected from the top down by parties. And if residents want to turn to their, you know, busty neta, you know, slum leader, they can turn to him or her. If they can't or don't want to, there's not really anybody else to go to. But what we really show in the chapter is that residents have significant agency. And this then brings up questions of what kind of leaders do they want? And do those leaders actually emerge? You know, just as you said, again, you know, a major driver of this selection decision is the education um, of those aspiring to be a slum leader. That it's such an important marker of capability and claim making that you're able to understand eligibility criteria and read it. You're able to write petitions. You're able to go to the government office, demands you know some sort of responsiveness from elites uh, to the problems of individual residents and uh, the community as a whole. So you bring up you know several really interesting points about sort of the ideas of different you know types of uh, you know time use, precarity, capital within these within these processes of selection, community leaders. Um, which is an, an ongoing process. How you know these patterns of informal leadership with any given community really don't calcify. Tracing back over you know several decades within our case study communities, you know you see the rise and fall of different types of leaders. You know sometimes that fall is because you know as we outline in the book, you know giving one example, one of the slum leaders that we spent time with, or former one I should say, started to engage it in gundagiri, um, sort of you know forceful you know behavior, going around uh, being coercive. Uh, residents wouldn't have it. Um, so they showed up at his doorstep one day uh, with rocks. Um, women took off their chapels, their sandals, and sort of beat the politician with their sandals or the, the slum leader with their sandals. And he lost power. You know, uh, there's informal elections in these communities. And there's the everyday decisions that residents make about who do I want to support? Who do I want to go to and seek help from? You know, to finally get to, you know, your question specifically. Yeah, the, I mean, the role of one's occupation is essential um, in this in this process. You will get, I mean, residents in these communities have um, a wide range of different types of occupations. Many of them, as you note, are mazdor. They, have, they leave early in the morning. They're working on construction sites, auto rickshaw drivers, street hawkers selling, you know, every imaginable type of wear or, you know, foods, food or drink. And as we find both in terms of our qualitative evidence and our quantitative evidence from our survey, these people are less likely to become slum leaders um, due to a lack of connectivity to the city bureau bureaucracy or, or to politicians, but also due to the fact that, that um, you know, the incredible precarity of their work in the informal sector doesn't really leave a lot of time to engage in community leadership. There were certainly um, slum leaders who were mazdor, who were sort of construction laborers, but they had to sort of balance and juggle that with their community leadership activity. You know, for the, for the most successful slum leaders, you know, the money that you get um, from solving the problems of residents and the money you get from political parties during elections can oftentimes dwarf the money that you get through your regular job. So, you know, moving into slum leadership, if you have the sort of qualities to do that, um, can sometimes be a job in and of itself. But we did find, you know, both qualitative and quantitative evidence that um, residents who have, you know, very modest but still public sector job, specifically in the municipality, are preferred by residents. Um, so to give you some examples of these, a safai karamchari, you know, a very modest job, but one where you're going to the municipality every day you're interacting with sort of the low, the vernacular sort of bureaucrats of the city. So you're better able to turn to them, you know, to ask, you know, for someone to come and clean out the gutter or for someone to come in and uh, fix that broken streetlight. Another common uh, job would be um, a chaprasi, you know, doing sort of simple paperwork, you know, within the municipality. 
or a municipal security guard. So we, you know, we have these sort of quotes in the book and sort of these, um, you know, a couple of vignettes of, you know, informal leaders who had these sorts of jobs um, where residents were sort of turned them and said, look, you're going to that very same place every day. You're seeing these people take our problems with you and that can help us solve them. You know, one of the communities that I spent several months in um, as an ethnographic case study, one of the leaders was a chauffeur, a public you know, sector chauffeur for local politicians. And not surprisingly, uh, you know, residents said, you know, you're with these people every day, you know, please be sort of the vehicle, you know, for our petition. And, and gender um, is, is, of course, um, interacting with all of this. 88% of the 629 slum leaders that we surveyed were men. Um, so this is a male dominated vocation. That said, oh, you know, one of the many reasons why we love and, and see the, the great value in doing both ethnography and surveys and qualitative case studies and, and archival work is that in, you know, in several of our case study communities, there were women who were doing netagiri. They were doing local leadership, but because they are women, they were not bestowed that title of neta um, in the community. So it was, you know, the, the, the contours of problem solving and collective action among women is a, is a fascinating and I think understudied, um, you know, topic that needs, you know, even more research. But women, you know, of course, you know, because of the gendered distribution of tasks at, at home, gender discrimination by state actors and politicians, you know, all of this sort of combines, you know, with things like time use and occupation to marginalize certain groups in the formation of leadership. Um, so I think you're, you're absolutely spot on with that question. So in 10 years, a lot of things changed. Uh, in the last decades, we have seen like a very strong uh, Eruption at a global level, like Global South and Global North, uh, digital technologies and, and changes in the economy, with, which have affected from China to Paraguay. In this context, a lot of migrant workers have engaged with the digital economy, selling their labor through digital platforms, let's say, which is my, my, my area of research, let's say delivery work, for example, which in many cases act as arrival infrastructures. So there's very low entry barriers for migrants to get into this job. And for these migrants, there's a constant, constant need to make do in everyday life, like we all do, but with a lot of other uh, hurdles and to balance the ambivalence of this new type of labor. They have to always be available in a sense to serve the, the convenience economy. Nowadays, in my own work, I've seen that the, there's a lot of uh, struggles from formal institutions such as unions, and political parties to connect with these workers. Have you seen in this time like a, a change or a relation between like new, let's say, forms of, of production and how they affect to a certain degree the way that people engage with politics and with brokers and, and has it have to a certain degree in your perception effects in the way that these relations are organized, let's say from social media to platform labor in that sense? Yeah, such a fascinating question, Nico. Thank you so much. I mean, I think the biggest change with people's relation to work, you know, that I've noticed over, you know, the last, say, decade and a half um, of engagement in the field was not necessarily brought about by sort of the, the introduction of new types of jobs. Um, it was, you know, certainly the pandemic. You know, one thing that Tarek and I examined, and we have a paper in World Development, you know, on this, um, on this issue was sort of, you know, the politics of service delivery during the pandemic, where we turned to the slum leaders that we had surveyed earlier during the, during India lockdown, which was one of the most harsh um, and strict ones sort of across the world where, you know, there's an incredible amounts of, um, you know, precarity and suffering people in informal settlements, in particular circular migrants who were unable to return back to their villages. So yeah, I mean, that I think, you know, that was a, a certainly a very intense moment. Um, but, you know, these larger ideas of, you know, that, I, that I'm sure is not unique to the populations that we're studying in India that connect to other parts of the, the globe um, among, among migrants that face such precarity, you know, this constant sort of uncertainty that is faced in, you know, access to employment that would be regular, um, you, know, you know, these are, of course, defining features of working in the informal in economy, you know, very little regulatory oversights. You know, if you get sick or you get hurt and you can't show up at the work site that day, you know, you don't get paid that day. And, you know, if you're not already below the poverty line, you're sort of teetering above it. You know, one of my colleagues down at Duke University, Anirudh Krishna, has a great book called One Illness Away, where he compares everywhere from sort of North Carolina in the United States to India to elsewhere, sort of showing that sort of, you know, incredibly delicate nature of life, you know, even teetering just above, you know, the poverty line. But, you know, some of the most precarious, in, as I just mentioned, some of the most precarious populations are these circular migrants. So, you know, Tarek and I, you know, study a particular sort of uh, um, subsection of migrants in India, those that are a little bit more rooted in the city. They've, they, you know, even if they're renting within the squatter settlements, they're sort of there, you know, semi-permanently. They're working in the city. Um, most have sort of moved with their family, although there is a renting population of, of male migrants. In the background, though, the numbers on this sort of vary, but there's at least, you know, um, by the estimates that I've seen, 
120 million circular migrants in India who are in villages for part of the year, you know, cultivating fields. And when they're not cultivating the fields, they're moving to cities, sometimes nearby, sometimes very far away, to uh, do uh, to engage in, in labor in the city um, and send money back to their families. Uh, Gareth Nellis and Kar Gaikwad, two other political scientists uh, you know, based here in the United States, have been doing some really outstanding work on the incredible marginalization uh, faced by circular migrants, where they're much more footloose. They don't have access to even um, you know, many informal types of services in the city. Politicians are oftentimes more disinterested in them because they're not necessarily voting in the city. And so they, they don't form that, you know, those vote banks. You know, politicians in India cities will use that English term vote bank to refer to people living in, in squatter settlements. Circular migrants who are sort of shifting back and forth between the city and the countryside throughout the year are, are especially vulnerable, you know, populations. And, you know, the uncertainty that you're sort of talking about, you know, stemming from, you know, not only employment, but access to services has all other types of manifestations that I'm sure are not unique to India. To continue to sort of point to work by, um, you know, you know, colleagues of mine, Tanu Kumar, uh, Allison Post, um, they did really interesting work on access to water in a couple Indian cities. There's a, there's, there's immense amounts of um, intermittency in access to water. Is the water gonna come through the tap in, in our community at 8 a.m.? Is it gonna come at 2 p.m.? Maybe it won't come at all today. And then going back to the gendered nature of work, I mean, you know, you'll very oftentimes see you know, these images of groups of women having to sit by the water tank or sit by the water tap you know, with children waiting for the water because if you're not there at that moment and you don't, get, and you don't fill up your bucket, um, you're not going to have water that day. And so, you know, it's almost difficult to even conceive of the incredible, um, you know, stress that that places on those individuals, their households. It, it, it disallows them from doing all other types of things that they, you know, could be doing otherwise. So that, you know, the, these different facets of precarity um, stemming from informality and employment and housing are just vast. And they are an incredible burden on, on individuals and, and migrants in particular in cities. And, you know, I would I, I would assume you know, India is, of course, the context that I study most closely. But, um, you know, certainly, you know, reading work by other people, you know, and, 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 and even just following the news that, you know, these these same conditions increasingly, you know, are facing large um, proportions of, of the world's population. It's something that we need to continue to understand and seek to mitigate. So I just wanted to jump in there um, on the issue of migrants. And uh, this is some this is something that you, it's an imaginary that you tease out in your book, Adam, uh, not just in the ethnographic portraits, which are so beautifully written at the beginning of every chapter, but perhaps also in how you discuss the demographic um, sort of, de uh, the urban demographic shift that people will keep coming from the countryside, moving to urban India. And uh, these are kind of questions that I've been looking at in, I was looking at it in my, in my PhD research, but I also keep continue to looking at to also in, in conversation rather with uh, also the subaltern urbanization group in Delhi at the CPR. And I was wondering, isn't uh, perhaps uh, this imaginary rooted a little bit uh, back in time that uh, perhaps that uh, urban reality itself is changing, that perhaps um, the demographic shift uh, that we're imagining of urban India would happen rather as an in-situ urbanization in the countryside or elsewhere uh, in places beyond the city? So, um, yeah, I would like you to talk about that, perhaps. Thank you, Nitin. And, you know, this provides an opportunity, if you don't mind, to, to point to some sort of, you know, new work that I'm doing with colleagues. Yes, absolutely. India's urbanization story is unfolding in all types of different respects. And, you know, much of that story is not in your Delhis and your Mumbais and your Bangalores. And it's not even in your Jaipurs and your Bhopals and your Indores. Around, you know, six out of every ten um, people living in urban India live in a city or a town under 500,000 people. Uh, so Tarek, um, uh, a new, an, an, another co-author and, and friend of ours, of course, um, Shikhar Singh, um, who just finished his PhD um, at Yale University, um, definitely keep an eye out for his work. He's doing fabulous work on the political economy um, of development in India. Um, the three of us are starting a new research agenda on India's small town, which again, where most people living in, in, in India cities are living in these smaller towns. Um, and we've been focusing on Rajasthan in particular and trying to understand ideas of social change, local state capacity, migration, um, the nature of electoral politics in these small cities, and whether it be sort of higher instances of rates of independence running to fewer uh, bureaucrats per capita, dramatic underspending by local government, you know, and, you know, the nature of constituency sizes, you know, in these little towns in Rajasthan, the average ward size is about a thousand people. That's like 200 households. And these are very intimate political spaces that differ dramatically from, say, like in Jaipur, where, 
you know, the average um, municipal ward is an order of magnitude bigger. So brokerage, political brokerage by people like, you know, the slum leaders that we study even in, our, in, in this current book that we're discussing, there's less of a need for them um, in small towns because you can more directly access these locally elected politicians. So I think there needs to be much work, much more work on, you know, and, and of course, there's there's endless questions to be asking in the, in the big metros. Um, and those will continue to be important you know, not only in, you know, and certainly in terms of academic work, but, um, you know, in terms of, um, you know, them being, you know, very much the economic engines of the country. But these much smaller, you know, Mundi town um, and other small cities, towns spread throughout India, um, you know, there's over 7,000 of them, you know, housing millions and millions and millions of people, 60% of India's, ur you know, urban population. There's, I think there's a great need to study these, these smaller towns. In addition to that, you know, and I, th I think another space um, that, that deserves much more work, in particularly in my field in political science, you know, just by virtue of the fact that, you know, oftentimes we ask different questions as, as different disciplines, is the peri-urban periphery. Um, there's been some exciting work over the last few decades uh, by geographers and anthropologists pointing to sort of the, the outskirts, the edges of cities, where the politics of land looms so large. Massive amounts of money um, shifting between hands um, in these land transactions, um, the emergence of, you know, what would be referred to in Jaipur and, and I'm sure elsewhere as the boom mafia, the land mafia, you know, which connects, you know, the small army of land brokers to political parties, private developers, you know, it's, it's this enormous web of actors um, who are making all these little decisions that are fundamentally changing the built space and the politics of the, the urban periphery. So with another co uh, colleague and co-author and friend, uh, Tanu Kumar, um, we've been studying sort of the outskirts um, of the edges of Jaipur, where, you know, the face of informality is increasingly not the squatter settlement, it is the unauthorized colony. It's these planned, privately planned neighborhoods that are unauthorized. They're not, they're not actually given permission to be, you know, to exist and be built on that land by the city authorities. The lands are oftentimes rural land. They're governed as rural agricultural spaces and they haven't been transformed into urban spaces. Uh, but people are still setting up sort of, um, you know, these urban neighborhoods and private developers are making, you know, windfalls of money, you know, all types of, um, you know, different you know, forms and, and faces of corruption that happen as people buy plots of land and, you know, endless, countless legal disputes, citing work um, that's unfolding and, and, and needs to be done on, you know, these spaces that, you know, Partha, you know, Mukhopadhyay and uh, his colleagues refer to as subaltern urbanization small towns, the edges of cities, you know, Shishmita Pati has this great new book on urban villages, you know, in Delhi, you know, it's, it's just thrilling to see, you know, um, uh, you know, the diversification of scholarship that's taking place uh, to understand, um, you know, these break, breakneck changes, you know, in cities and towns of all types and, you know, size. Thank you very much. So, as I said earlier, it was very pleasant to go through the book because there's a, um, a lot of referencing to clientelism, to like populism uh, in different parts of the world like really good parallels and i was it was very illuminating to see like this focus on competition coming from latin america and and, and we do look a lot at the united states political science i think there's a structure so there's um, always i think it's been very present and in the latin american context uh, as um, the research for example uh, of uh, juan pablo luna has looked into the fragmented modern society and state criminal relations let's say within the peripheries, within the centers of the cities. So there's a lot of pockets as well of peripheral kind of urbanization, even within the city. So segregation, Latin America, it's, uh, it's known for its um, high spatial segregation. And in this context, we see a lot of actors, let's say that contest the state work on the provision of services and material gains are not necessarily linked to linking the, the population or let's say like the poor migrants or the poor overall with the state. So there are brokers that actually are providing directly the service. And I thought that there was a, just very interesting to see like, what what do you think about this? Like, uh, how do you see like there are some parallels and why there's not a focus on competition in other contexts? I think that it was just a, a really brilliant approach of seeing it through this perspective and not just through the criminal relations, but what can you tell me about like these other actors that I guess uh, are also existent uh, in, in, in the context of, of India? Um, Nico, thank you. I mean, so, so many great points, you know, in, in embedded in those in those questions. You know, the study of urban politics, the study of informality, the study of clientelism. I mean, Latin America has been sort of the epicenter of that, you know, going back decades, you know, to the, the 60s and 70s. Uh, you know, Janice Perlman, Robert Gay, Javier Ayero, um, you know, in Argentina, I mean, the, the list, um, you know, goes on of these um, just outstanding studies asking and, and picking up on many of these same themes of urban informal settlements, places like favelas or, or barrios and, you know, low income people in the city seeking to carve out a better life for themselves 
in having to deal with all types of different political actors and uh, state actors you know, in that process. Um, so it's, it's, it's been really fun um, and, and so illuminating um, you know, for me you know, over the course of the past decade and a half uh, to really, you know, not, not, not trying to flatter myself, but like try my best to read as deeply as possible you know, into this literature that, that's so vibrant in the Latin American context. And, you know, and much of, um, you know, what Tarek and I are doing in this book is, um, I think at least in, implicitly throughout the book and, and explicitly in several places, is to put, you know, our findings in a conversation with work, for instance, on clientelism in Latin America, which oftentimes renders it a much more rigid and contingent relationship than I think what we see in India. Certainly in no position to comment on you know, empirical realities of what's happening in any Latin American city beyond what I've read. But you oftentimes get this sense, say from work by like Susan Stoke, that's, you know, low income voters, places like, you know, Buenos Aires or, or Rio or Mexico City are, you know, sometimes they're depicted as cowering, but at the very least have to rigidly line up behind their local broker, behind the political party. There's very, very little wiggle room. If you're given something, you better show up at the vote uh, at the ballot box and vote that same way. From what I from what I understand and from what I gather, um, one one scholar's work that I'm really excited about that I've been in touch with recently, Rodrigo Zarazaga, uh, who's based it in, um, in in Buenos Aires, saying, you know, I'm, I'm seeing a lot of the same stuff in Buenos Aires. Um, you know that you know these communities oftentimes have multiple informal leaders. They have multiple brokers, and those brokers have to compete with one another for the affections and support of residents in the community. So that competition among them, in theory, should be opening up a little bit more space among residents and deciding, am I going to go to that person or that person or that person? You know, increasing sort of uh, political competition across parties should be opening up more agency, you know, on the part um, of voters. One interesting, um, and, and to get to another point of yours, cities differ in, you know, are there available sort of civil society organizations working in these communities? In, in Jaipur and Bhopal, the two cities that we study, you know, the presence of NGOs is, is very, very weak and fleeting. They really were not present actors in the communities that we studied. You know, at most, you might get a couple NGOs that are affiliated with the BJP, part of what's called the Sang Parivar, the family of organizations of the, of the Hindu right. So think, things like Seva Bharti, an NGO that does like things like, you know, important things, but like, you know, things like cataract surgery or setting up medical camps. You know, there's things that might happen a couple times a year, but not sort of a deep uh, presence. Labor organization is essentially non-existent um, in these cities. There was significant Communist Party activity in both of these cities in the 60s and 70s that was building sort of class consciousness um, within the informal settlements in the two cities. But really by the mid-1980s, that started to really sort of weather and then break apart. So this is a highly fragmented politics across informal settlements. Gang activities look much different from, you know, at least in the Indian context, the movie, you know, Slumdog Millionaire, you know, and there's been several sort of follow-ups, you know, different types of, you know, Netflix series and movies, you know, when they're depicting slum settlements, you know, it's these, you know, gunslinging, you know, slumlords, where if, you know, you cross them, you know, you're risking your life and, you know, illicit things, you know, being exchanged. Honestly, like in, you know, what is now three years of, you know, field work, you know, in these communities, Never once did I see something that even approached that level. And, and that oftentimes the subject of study in those movies is Mumbai, which is different, right? I mean, Mumbai, Dharavi, you know, this slum settlement in Mumbai that has a million people, uh, you know, obviously a very interesting and important place, but it, it is a statistical outlier. Most people living in slum settlements in India do not live in Mumbai. They don't live in slums that have a million people. They live in this enormous constellation of small, medium-sized cities where these sorts of gang activities um, at that level of organization and the presence of guns really just doesn't exist. Certainly, you know, there were like gangs of local boys that would get in fights. Um, people were making bootleg liquor. You know, there was other sort of illicit things going on that the, the, you know, the police are present and are seen as a very predatory force. A, a colleague of mine that I went to grad school with, uh, Nick Barnes, who's at St. Andrews um, in, in Scotland, uh, who studies gang governance in, in Rio de Janeiro um, within the favela. You know, reading his scholarship and, you know, um, learning from the experiences of his fieldwork, it's a fundamentally different place from what, what I was studying, where sort of the, the presence of organized crime is less present. But that, of course, is a scope condition. The findings that we have in our book might ring a little bit less true in spaces where there's, you know, really sort of uh, you know, organized crime, high levels of sort of violence. It, things might look quite different in terms of the formation of leadership and the relationship between citizens and the state. Adam, I wanted to jump in there. I was I was wondering, just to amplify the question of Nikos, uh, I did um, really like your attention to kind of everyday life of these places and to sort of, you know, peel off rather projection that's made on these settlements sometimes of, you know, the sort of gun violence and all the crime happening and you take us, embed us into the everydayness of, of these settlements. 
and i was wondering where um how how does that sit in to the overarching method of your research and uh, the book itself which where 80% of the book is rather a discussion of quantitative data rather of surveys and of, of other kinds of quantitative data and uh, again to just tie it to nikos's question did you for instance also think about collecting data from uh, social media so this sort of big data uh, digital media social media kind of data thanks nitin i mean going all the way back uh, to say 2013 2014 when tark and i first first got in touch with one another i think one of the reasons why we like to work with one another so much and we you know we do our field work together um we're out there with the survey teams every single day together i think it's you know one of the things that you know brought us together initially and and i think sustains you know the the research was this appreciation for multi-method research and not just for the sake of doing multi-method research but because we think that it oftentimes generate you know compelling products right so we both really like doing ethnography you know these are understudied misunderstood spaces where you know spending every day you know marinating in local context talking to residents, seeing spontaneous patterns of collective action, seeing how people deal with the various challenges that face these communities is indispensable uh, to understanding process, to understanding the formation of informal authority, um how people get things, how networks form. I'd like to think that that's really like the heart of the the book and the heart of our work. It's 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 the it's the qualitative data. But we also like to, you know, compare, you know, when you start spending time in these communities and you go from one to the next you quickly notice you know there's 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 differences um this community is is way more diverse than this one um in terms of religion or caste or region of origin this one's near the core of the city this one's far away this one was built in 1980 this one's only 6 years old it's different across communities got us thinking and i think compelled us to want to do uh survey research across a much larger set of settlements so uh, you know as i mentioned earlier we we surveyed uh residents across 110 different settlements and i think that gave us you know the ability and and something that would be been much more difficult to do qualitatively to give us a sense of um and the distribution of different types of variables and outcomes um and, and allowing us to seek to explain it we do you know survey experiments where you know we're trying to sort of disentangle the causality of things that are very that are very quite you know that are difficult to do um with observational data you know the surveys are cross sectional right there there a snapshot in time uh, but we wanted to do historical research too so doing you know oral histories interviews with residents one of the most exciting you know and un- unanticipated sources of data for us was um what what i refer to as informal archival material that it became you could almost assume that the informal leaders in the community obsessively keep documentation going back decades um petitions that they've written to politicians and officials the responses of those politicians and officials um public community meeting notes you know political ephemera going back decades. I mean they would oftentimes sort of sit us down and say, "Okay, like you're asking about when this water well was installed. You know, here are these 15 papers of our struggle to get that." So that in addition to the um oral histories, it allowed us sort of triangulate and recreate the micro histories of these communities. So yeah, I don't think that we would have felt comfortable like, you know, hanging our hat on, you know, any one of these sort of methods and sources of data. We we think that, you know, putting them in a conversation with one another the deficiencies of one um being made up for for the strengths of the other allowed us to sort of you know render what we what we hope is a sort of more complete picture of the of this you know the politics of these spaces thank you so much adam for my next question i would like to um relate to nico's last point um on the different kinds of competition again and and talk about a, an arena of competition that you outline um in in the fourth chapter basically where where it's about um which kinds of brokers get selected by higher ups in the hierarchy um of the of these parties to me um it, it was again a very interesting chapter and i think uh, it talks a lot about the opportunities of upward mobility for brokers um that they enjoy and basically that the reality is there that brokers can move up if they're if they're very capable in the party hierarchy and that they're rewarded for their capability also by these higher ups by these patrons uh when they exhibit certain traits and located in certain types of settlements and you also point out that it's uh, it's clear that sort of like these parties would be doubly motivated to integrate good brokers um firstly for the services that they provide for the party and then also to keep them doing sort of like this good work for the other parties who are in opposition or in competition with um with them obviously but you also say that these posts are rare um and that parties have little incentive to create sort of like overbloated a local level organizational structures at some point kind of like the only way for promotion is upward uh regarding this i was wondering about the trade off that is involved for these low patrons um that select good brokers and promote these good brokers as well uh in the sense that um there's sort of like a very real threat coming from these very effective brokers who are kind of like next in line for the 
low patron's uh, position in the party. Yeah, I, I was wondering what you what you think about that, and whether you maybe also found different mechanisms of how of, of who actually then decides uh, which brokers are integrated into the party positions, and and maybe also which positions they're allocated. Yes, Sophie, thank you for so nicely framing you know chapter four of our book. Yeah, I mean, in, in any corner of the city, in any constituency, you know, whether it be a ward or an assembly constituency. There, there are hundreds and hundreds of these local brokers who want to be absorbed within parties and be given a position in the party as a vehicle for sort of socio-political upward mobility. It gives them greater sort of name, name recognition, more access to goodies that the party sort of uh, distributes, and for many brokers, a, a hope of maybe someday um, getting a ticket to fight in municipal. The amount of money that it takes to fight um, in a state election, just simply out of reach for, you know, 99.999% you know, of people residing in uh, informal settlements. But it was the case in some of our settlements that they were, because they were so popular, have de- had demonstrated loyalty to a party that they were allocated a ticket to fight in the municipal election. So there's this constant clamoring for party positions that are by design made scarce. There's only, yeah, so there's only so many positions to dole out. Um, and so what we, what we seek to, you know, ask and, and study in, in chapter four is looking at this through the eyes of the patron in the city, sort of these higher level politicians who have a lot of sway over how these positions are sort of doled out. How are they deciding amongst these this small army of brokers who to give these these coveted positions to? Pointed exactly to this trade-off of wanting to pick somebody that is loyal. You know, we we typically think of, you know, the BJP, the Congress, you know, these are political parties. But when you get down into the into the city, and I'm sure elsewhere in India, and elsewhere outside of India, you know, these are faction-ridden organizations, right? It's it's factions all the way down, um, even within the political party. So there's certainly concerns, as you point out, among politicians of is if I bring this person into the party and give them, you know, this kind of platform and these resources, are they going to be continue to be loyal to me? Are they going to work to advance my own political interests? Are they going to undermine it? Are they going to switch to somebody else when the the winds favor that other person? Could they even try to leapfrog over me? So those are certainly concerns. On the flip side, you know, the main one of the main, of course, reasons to, to absorb um, these local leaders, these brokers from uh, from slum settlements is that um, you hope that they will work hard within their community because they're popular there to mobilize voters behind you. So there's this you know, potential sort of trade-off um, or tension between loyalty and efficacy um, in mobilization um, in the selection of these local brokers. And we find sort of interesting sort of evidence um, that points towards both of these, right? So patrons do prefer people of their own jati, for example, their own subcast, which is seen you know, very largely in the literature as a heuristic tool that facilitates cooperation uh, transactions between people, this idea of co-ethnicity. That if we're of the same ethnic group, you know, we're embedded in the same sort of kinship structures. We have similar sort of understandings and patterns of collective action and ideas of reciprocity. So we do pick up on some evidence of that, but you know, connecting with some of our earlier findings in the book, um, the education as this marker of, of capability continues to loom large um, in, in understandings of broker selection by patrons because they are so intimately aware of the importance of capability in popularity in the neighborhood. That, you know, we want to pick people that, you know, of course, are going to be loyal, but people that are going to maintain the support of residents within their communities. And they know through their daily interactions with these individuals, um, because these very brokers are the ones coming to them to ask for things for the broker's community, that their efficacy in doing so um, ripples back into the community, maintains their sort of informal authority, thus allowing them to lean on these brokers during elections for for political support. So yeah, it's a really interesting sort of trade-off. Yeah, I think like, you know, future, certainly future work, you know, not only in, in our cities, but elsewhere, you know, going back to your work, you know, the Amadmi party might operate in really interestingly different ways in the ways that they engage the grassroots, the way that they engage informal leaders, brokers in their in their party. And of course, in any given community, you know, parties are vying with one another over these same individuals too. And, you know, as you move across different states and cities in India, you know, party systems um, and, you know, what parties are in competition, um, degrees of competitiveness, you know, sort of shift around. So I think it's a, it's an interesting open question, you know, especially in the Amami party to sort of, you know, uh, to, to look into these sort of patterns of network formation uh, between the grassroots and, and, and the larger currents of politics in the in the city. Thank you, Adam. Thank you, Nikos. Thank you, Sophie. This was such a wonderful conversation and I hope more people write such uh, books from the bottom up, uh, which are combining multi-methods and uh, focusing on quotidian practices. Uh, Thanks a lot for generously giving your time and attention to this much-deserved book. And I hope our listeners 
consider uh, engaging with this book more. Thank you. Well, I, I know I can speak for Tarek as well. Thank you so much uh, for, for having me. Um, it was so wonderful talking to the three of you. It was a real honor and uh, thank you so much. Same from, from my side. It was a great conversation. As I said, I, I also learned a lot, which was wonderful. Also, as Nitin mentioned, the question of methods is really inspiring to see being used uh, on that way and combining especially like ethnographic work with the um, quantitative data. So thank you very much. Yeah, also many thanks from my side again. I uh, I don't want to repeat myself too much, but um, yeah, I'm, I'm a big fan. I continue to be a big fan and I hope to read um, many more books by you in the future. <laughs> thanks to you for listening. For more information, visit our website urbanpolitical.podigy.io Please subscribe and follow us on Twitter.